Training, mindset, integrity, incremental improvement. What can you do better today? Start right here with the Pendola Project. Welcome back, everyone, to the Pendola Project. I'm your host, Matt Pendola. And today, for your Monday motivation, we're actually going to discuss in a little further detail an age-old question about training. What is optimal for strength and conditioning? This is, this is not something that's really easily, easily said or described. So we're going to really get into it today. But I'm going to need some help. I'm going to get that help from Ryan Golick. He is an expert trainer, and I don't say that usually, but I will with Ryan. We actually met almost, I want to say 20 years ago almost, we both kind of started off in this industry together, but uh, through the years, we've become good friends, and we are collaborating together on some of these training questions that we really want to be able to serve our clients better with. So I'm going to introduce you now to Ryan so you can get to know him a little bit, and then we will get into our question of the day. Ryan, how are you, buddy? Matt, I'm good. Thanks for having me on, bud. Yeah, man. So a little bit about me. I have been in the fitness training world since about 98. So do the math on that, 20, 20 plus. And I have gone through all of the different waves of nonsense that have existed in fitness and soaked a lot of those up and then rejected a lot of them and shamed myself for using them. But... <laughs> In the general scheme of it, uh, I now target a lot of pain management-based functional movement, and I hate that word, functional movement. What's I, a better term than functional movement? Because I agree. Well, that's the problem. It's, a, it's, it's the perfect word, and then therefore it is now overly exploited as it as makes the whole term garbage. But uh, I like to enhance people's ability to move. So a lot of our assessment-based protocols, we just look at how someone has moved and the restrictions that have occurred through age or injury and just giving them a better opportunity to move, whether it's through cueing, whether it's through soft tissue modalities. Oh, I'm going to get flack for that. Uh, <laughs> whether it's, you know, whatever it takes to be able to look at someone and say, okay, how can I get this person to understand that they can move better than this or pain-free? Even if it's not a better movement quality, it's a it's a pain-free movement. And that's really what our target is just help people move better so that they can consistently get back to doing what they want to do. Yeah. That's a great explanation. And I don't think that you mentioned you're also an LMT, right? So you're working with these clients sometimes a little bit on the table. I'm almost a doctor. Let's not kid ourselves. <laughs> John, John Hodges uh, listens to this podcast. Sometimes the a good friend of both of ours, a physical therapist, and we like to basically have a little bit more of a spectrum that we can work with, I think, in the facility, in the gym. So I know both you and I actually discussed getting our LMT license about the same time back in the day. Mm -hmm. So we could do those things. But the difference is, in all seriousness, that I think it's just another tool that we can serve our clients with, but it's not the thing that we exclusively work on and we don't like to overemphasize, for example, what doing massage work is really for, right? Yeah. I think the the really any of those tools that are used, whether it be foam rolling or soft tissue or cupping or needling or whatever the theraguns, the whole point is that can I take someone that doesn't feel comfortable moving, 
do something in a short term, 30 seconds to a minute to five minutes, whatever it takes based on that person. And can they get off of whatever that device is and move better? And if I can get them to a position, because I want to see someone, let's just, let's take a simplicity. Let's look at a squat, right? I want somebody to squat. I have them squat. There, it hurts when I go here with my knee. It hurts in my back, hurts this. Okay, <clears throat> is this tissue work going to make that feel less painful when you try it again? Okay, you feel a little bit less painful. Okay, can I train you there? You move better. The body looks better. The form looks better. All right, I can train you there. I didn't feel comfortable training you the way you were moving before. So whatever it takes, whether it be an activation drill or a soft tissue modality or whatever tool you want to use, if they can go to a training phase, then I don't think you did a disservice for that person. I love that. That's that's a great explanation, Ryan, because really oftentimes I think that when we talk about archetypes, like a squat would be an archetype. And we want our clients to be able to move better in those positions. I think we also have to remember that we're talking about having them move better for them and also for their eventual why. So getting an ass to a grass squat type of scenario, that may be entirely necessary for an athlete that is going to be emphasizing that position more. But... For me, I think we're both on the same lines there where I want to get that client more confident in that position, first of all, because we're all going to cop a squat, sit on the toilet, be able to get ourselves off that toilet without having any issues, right? And so we're, when, we work about, when we talk about function, we're really talking about moving better for life, right? Isn't that why you want them to move better in a squat in the first place? For sure. I mean, I, I, I laughed a little bit. Just I had a client legitimately tell me that was his goal. He goes, hey, when I'm 90 years old, I want to be able to get off the toilet. And, I, and you know, he was six seven. So I go, hey, I get it. And I think that early in your training career, a lot of people put a certain amount of emphasis on this idea of what perfect movement is, right? You have to be able to go ass to grass or below parallel, or you have to be able to get four inches of forward translation of the knee past the toes, or you have to have, you know, certain amount of degrees of external rotation of the shoulder. And that might be true in a more athletic population or someone who, as you described there, why requires that motion. But if I have 75 year old grandma that just wants to comfortably pick up her grandchild and as that kid gets older, wants to continue to be strong enough to do that. And then you go, well, you know what, listen, and this is, this is classic. When I worked at, as a PT aide back in 99, you know, mechanics was so, okay, well, you know, if you're going to pick up that box, you got to straddle that box. And you have to squat with really good form to it, pull it to your body, stand up, then turn. And the more I've looked at that, I go, okay, you know, if you're acute coming off injury, maybe that's how you need to target things. But if you're a parent and you're a parent, so you've got a kid that just started figuring out how to walk and you're over here doing the dishes and you see him walking towards something, you're probably going to bend over sideways and grab a hold of that kid and yank him towards you. And that was not your perfect technique, but that's life. And I don't care if you're an athlete or a general human, right? When you start looking at that stuff, 
you have to move in a lot of different angles. So pain-free movement is much more relevant than perfect movement. That's really, really well said. I, I think for those people listening, really listen back to that last minute or so because that is, I think, the better explanation of what quote-unquote functional movement for life should be about. And that's the perfect way to think of it. And when it comes to, like, for example, talking about aging, if we move less, we age more. That's kind of the way I tend to think of it. So, again, you can't get off the couch. We start aging more rapidly. We, we start to – they have actually studies that talk about when your cadence slows, when you walk. And I'm sure you've read about those things too. And that can be directly correlated in that slower natural gait that that walk becomes labored, becomes hinged, becomes unhinged, I should say. Then walking becomes less because it's probably painful. And these issues are what we're trying to think about for life, for the long term. So even when I have an elite athlete, I'm thinking also about what's going to happen when uh, they retire. And when I think about somebody like Les Nesbitt, who is, you know, now definitely, uh, you know, older, he's, 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 he's now about 80 years old. And when he first started with me about 20 years ago, he had already had a few knee surgeries, some injuries, stuff like that. Okay. And uh, then I had really started to work a lot more with him on that that knee issue that he had but then looking at long term what were we going to be doing when he was hunting for example he was going to get out of the blinds so he still got to get out of that depth position so in that case i would do say a bulgarian split squat with him to get him into that lower range, for example, and mimic those movements that he needed to do. We got very good at getting out of the blinds for hunting because that was his main goal, his main objective. But also the another side effect of that is that the man can get up and down off of the couch or off of you know any position without being in pain, even if he's not doing it the way that maybe a 20 year old athlete would do it. Right. So that's, I think that's a good way to sum that part up. And so now Ryan, we're going to just move into our question of the day, which I think the first thing that we like to talk about is what is really optimal. And so for strength and conditioning, the first thing I like to cut it down to is, are we dealing with somebody who is a polymath or a specialist? Right. So for example, if you are, your main objective is to be a CrossFit athlete because you want to compete in CrossFit, that's great. Go for it. That is more of that polymath side of things. And of course, you know, you might have another person who's more of a specialist like me. I would say that I'm mainly focused on distance running and that's my specialty more. Um, but I do have some B goals like uh, Krav Maga and doing some different martial arts, boxing, things like that. But that's a little bit more for fun. So in my case, I would think of myself as a runner first. So everything that I do in training from there is going to be dictated off of my main running goals. So of course, now conditioning would take the forefront in my training. So establishing, first of all, you know, what is that why? What is that objective to know what should be more optimal, quote unquote, in your 
training. So I'll explain a little bit more about how I attack that for a runner. But for you, Ryan, what do you see as optimal for strength and conditioning? So I've looked at this in a couple different ways throughout the years, working with different people from a general populace to some athletes. And the more I've looked at it, and certainly willing to argue this point with me if you want, the higher end the athlete that you get, the less that that absolute performance-based strength and conditioning really benefits them because the reality is that athlete is already a freak athlete. I mean, LeBron could have never touched a weight and he would have been a monster. Bo Jackson did push-ups and sit-ups. I mean, they're already there. The genetics are there. The conditioning component as far as what their muscle memory and what their ability is exists. So when I look at an athlete, I, and I'm, and I'm going to go backwards from like the top end athlete. If I look at a top end athlete and they come to me, my goal, just like you were saying with less, my goal is if I have a 24 year old baseball player coming up in the ranks, that was a freak athlete and he's a monster. How can I get him to have a career through his later thirties? And then when he comes out, he's walking like a normal functioning human being. How can I get him to get through an entire season not a modified 2020 season and stay relatively injury free with a, without the account of the freak accidents, right? You have to develop both the tissue quality and you have to counteract the things that are being overexploited or overused in the general scheme of their sport. So to me, optimal strength conditioning is your ability to take someone from performance and make them resilient and then take someone who is maybe a 12 year old developing, has got some potential, give them a foundation of movement and then move them to those performance skill sets to be able to optimize their neurological recruitment or their muscle memory patterning or whatever it is to be able to give them that skill set that they may not have had. And then you take a general populace and it's kind of a blend of both. If you don't have a foundation or I was a high school athlete, okay, well, it's 40 years ago. What can you do now? How can I get you to move better so that I can build those diminishing type two fibers, which as you know, as we age, those are the fibers that go fastest. And the reality is we don't, cause we don't use them, but they might, they might be required. You got to pop up out of bed. Cause you hear the doorbell and you throw your back out because you got startled. I mean, that's, not something we want to look forward to. And those are stupid ways to get injured. In reality, we could have done so much just in the basic understanding of strength and conditioning to make you function. So this is why this is not an easy question because it kind of, it, it is so case specific that we're going to be challenged to ever really be able to say this is optimal. Yeah. Okay. So this is, I think a good part to start to break down a little bit. So when we first meet an athlete, and I, and I describe any client coming in to see me with any sort of goal as being an athlete. So that's, that's my definition there. They don't need to be elite. They don't need to be 
uh, even competing, but if they have specific goals and they want to do that with this functional approach, to me, that is athletic. O oftentimes, I use the word athletic instead of functional, by the way, just because I want to constantly have my athletes thinking like athletes. And so from that standpoint, on day one, I think a lot of times they're surprised that we're going to do an assessment, but then I'm going to give them what I call their personal protocol. Now, this to me is the uh, form follows function kind of idea where I'm looking more now at how they are functioning. And let's say that we don't have the proper stability through the foot, right? So our arch collapses and oftentimes we will go right to, do we have ankle mobility? Do we have, you know, good glute stability through the side butt, we'll say, right? And even though that is something that most people these days understand, in fact, almost to an annoying point where I'll have, say, a runner come in and say, I know it's my hips. I know it's my hips. Well, hips are always going to be involved. So however you learn that or discovered that or was told that, you're probably not wrong. The, the question to me, though, is that, are we negating other important areas of function and because we're so focused on the hips? So now they're just doing a bunch of, say, mini band drills and working on external rotation, but they're not doing it necessarily from the ground up, for example. So that's where I will get them on their feet, having them do protocol that I think that is a little bit more athletic driven, if that's the case and then test and retest and see, okay, did this improve your gait? Did this improve your function, right? So that's, that's what we work on more first instead of just loading them right up and going into these, uh, you know, mechanically strengthened uh, positions, which definitely has its place in training, and I definitely want to get them going with that as soon as possible but really what I want them to do is start to understand and discover how they're moving, why they are choosing a specific goal too, because I think that that's also oftentimes misunderstood. And we'll get into that with the, especially the conditioning side of things. But that, Ryan, is how I would first approach a client and to see what it is that we need to prioritize first. So in other words, are we talking about um, improving a skill set as much, right? So when you talked about having the more elite athletes, if they're already the, 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 as elite as it gets, and, and I guess I would say Gwen Jurgensen is probably the, the, uh, the, as elite as it's going to get when I'm coaching somebody, right? In the beginning of her programming, it was not at all about uh, getting out there and performing specific skill sets for her gait, at least not with me. It was all about addressing the mobility, stability, integration, and almost what I think about is more facilitation type of needs, right? So that's where I would say reciprocal mobility stability throughout her body was the first and foremost objective. Then it was about supporting her gait. And that's kind of the way I saw her strength training in the beginning. Then as we go along, working on things as simple as frontal plane work, I will just kind of finish my thought with that. But a lot of runners are not working in the frontal plane. So going back to what you said, when I say frontal plane, guys, I mean like think going to the side 
right, going to taking a right step to the side or a left step to the side, that type of work. A lot of runners are not doing that at all, yet they will tell you they know they need to work more on their butt. So do they understand what's going on with external rotation in their hips and those associated muscles, but also just getting back to that uh, specific part of the question that I want to address, which is what do we really need to put into the objective first? So people will be surprised that my runners are a lot of times working in that frontal plane quite a bit and not nearly as much in the sagittal plane because they're already doing so much of that anyways. So your thoughts on, on that with a client, Ryan, that you would see. So I think what we really come down to when you're talking about that is we assess how the person moves. It doesn't matter if they're GPP general preparation type of person or an athlete at a low level, an athlete at a high level, if you're not taking a look at how somebody moves right out the gate and you're just focused on what their goal is, you're not going to take that person to their goal. In my opinion, there are some people that certainly jump right down that for lack of a better word, the performance, you know, alley and say, okay, you want a 36 inch vertical leap and you've got a 32 inch vertical leap. We're doing low rep power squats and a lot of plyos. Okay. Well, that's great. Have you had any injuries? Do you have any pain? Let's look at a basic. Can you do a single leg calf raise? Can you stand on one leg? Can you stand on one leg with your eyes closed? Can you do these different things that are so base level that you would think no problem? And all of a sudden they just fall apart and they're a mess and you go, it's your problem is not you jumping on a box. You've been jumping all your life. You're a basketball player. You started playing when you were six and you're 16 years old. Now for 10 years, you've been jumping. I don't know that the first thing I need to do is take you over to a box and see if you can jump on it. I need to see where you've been cheating the system and the, the body is not stupid, right? The body is the smartest organism you have. It's by far going to bypass any way that you think about it. So when you go to bend over and you're like, and your body doesn't trust your hamstrings, it's going to go somewhere else. It's going to figure out a way for you to get there. And athletes are the worst at this because a high end athlete has sorted it out. Okay. I know that I need to get from a to B, whatever that is for the athlete, my body will figure it out. And it has figured it out for a very long time. And now I'm getting this symptom or I'm, or, I'm, or I'm hitting this ceiling and I haven't been able to really get past this. And you go, okay, great. You've done very well to this point. What's missing? And what you're talking about is what's missing. Okay. Maybe they've got garbage feet, tight ankles, pronation, arches are collapsing out. They roll off of their little toe constantly, yet they're able to run five minute miles for a marathon. They want to break that. Okay. Well, you know what? I need to work on, on glute power or maybe let's figure out some base level of stability from the ground. Like you're talking about, or maybe we're, we need to have more of that pillar stabilization. Cause maybe your ass for lack of a better word is holding on for dear life. Cause you're not stable anywhere else. So of course you're going to be tight there. Let's protect that. Let's protect the organism. Let's move from somewhere else. So this idea of optimal strength conditioning has to start from a base assessment, whatever your assessment protocol is. I need to see what this person is not capable of doing 
And that's where I got to start. And that just comes with a general understanding of the sport or the person. You're saying runners don't try, they don't work in that frontal plane. They don't move sideways. That's probably a pretty good place to start, right? So that's anywhere. If I'm looking at a rotational athlete, I need to know what they look like rotating. Oh, well, you know, golfers, I don't know if you've worked with many golfers. You know, obviously there is a disassociation between thoracic rotation and hip rotation. If you look at someone and they go into a swing, I'm not a swing coach. I'm a crap golfer. But if I look someone go into that and I see their hips turn for days, you know, I'm probably going to need to look at whether this person has any thoracic rotation at all. And if they've got none, then I've got to address upstream, downstream. How's their core stability? Well, it's garbage. Okay, well, they're getting it above. And now their entire back's jacked up and their hips hurt. And they've got all sorts of these rotational issues below. And all I really had to do was try to clean up a little bit of abdominal stabilization and give them some freedom to move above it. Yeah, and I think that what you're describing here, too, in that initial assessment with an athlete, it's all about good education and and talking to that person and hopefully we're talking to the audience in this way that they understand this should be a priority right now and i oftentimes find that athletes are comparing themselves to other athletes and even just other peers right so they want to reach a similar goal but in store, instead of just following the process that's going to work for them, what works for you, it's more about, well, this is what my friend's doing. I need to be doing this, too. Well, you know, maybe your friend is further along in the progressions, and now they're doing something that's a lot more specific to something like running, but they've earned their way up there. I certainly will take an athlete that is functionally optimal you know optimal is a, a relative term because really if you're always stressing your system in different way different ways you're never really optimal right but we'll just say that they're moving well and i feel good about having them progress into something like plyometrics that is going to be something that i program in because i believe they are going to benefit from that type of mass specific force not because their friend is doing it too so i think that's a a big thing to understand in training i've had athletes that didn't do a single plyo jump okay they didn't do a single box jump or anything but followed their initial six weeks of personal protocol really working on their specific mechanical needs for those stress adaptions and they got faster because that's what their body really needed the most at the time so you know discussing things like overreaching and getting into overtraining this is where the recovery part of conversation i think is going to kick in now and we initially were talking the other day more about recovery from strength and conditioning and so i think that we also have to understand that if we come in for an assessment hiring a trainer or if we're just realizing that we need some further knowledge or we need some help past our plateaus there's probably a good chance that our body has been overstressed for a while if we've been plateaued and we've been consistently trying to hit let's say our strength numbers or our conditioning goals and things like that so 
that's where I think that we have to have that discussion around easy days being easy and recover hard is, is the term that we use a lot of times from Bobby McGee. And in that, I will give my athlete a very easy day to where they might just be walking in between those hard efforts or those hard days, or they might do, be doing something like uh, three minutes of running easy and two minutes of walking and doing that for 30 minutes and realizing that this is still a person that's going to go to work and have kids at home. And, you know, I, I mentioned Gwen Jorgensen before she has a team around her and she's a professional athlete. So when she is not focused on her running, everything else is focused on recovery and most of us don't have, you know, our meals being prepped for us and have a massage therapist uh, that's meeting us as many times as we want to and things like that. So this is uh, also, I think, some part of the discussion is how can we make this practical in recovery for our GPP clients, which, you know, I would I would say that whether or not you're an age group athlete or if you're just trying to get some general goals even that we all have to follow these recovery rules because we live a stressful life and we work a lot and we have a lot on our table and we can't just follow just a program that happens to be printed out online somewhere that's supposed to work for everybody. Right, Ryan? Yeah. Uh, I like a lot of the things that you're talking about because we're all going to be on this same page. You, you referenced cross being a competitive CrossFit athlete. And I remember reading an article a few years back that showed the top five, top five or six athletes that basically were podiumed. Not one of them had an actual job, right? And I've even read uh, an article, anyone that follows that, Matt Frazier has always been the, the guy for the last few years. And he didn't actually win the CrossFit Games until he stepped completely away from his other aspects of life and committed 100% to this. And I think when people look at that, they think, oh, well, he was just, you know, he's training hard four to six hours a day and he's going. And what people don't really understand is the recovery aspect is so much more important. And even your general populace, I don't know if people are out there listening, just looking for the bro science and trying to get the big bicep, but you hammering bicep seven days a week is not necessarily going to grow the bicep if it never actually gets to grow from there. So what I've been playing with lately is I've started to age. And I think we always, as strength coaches, we you, always, you just started aging. Yes. No, just, uh, two years ago, I started aging. We, we, we really yeah. just started feeling it. Didn't we? Yeah. At 40, I started, going, Oh, now I'm aging. But I think as strength coaches, we experiment ourselves, right? We, we think, okay, I need my, I need this certification because for my clients and you're really like, Oh, I really, that's going to apply to me. But I've started to look at what's the lowest dose I can provide myself in a performance level or a strength level to succeed. Because if I can give myself the absolute bare minimum dose and get stronger, my recovery is easier. If I go, if all I need is two sets of five squats my day, the, my recovery the next day can be so much less. But if I'm sitting there thinking I need 10 sets of three, I need five different accessories, then I got to do 45 minutes of core work. 
And then I got, you know, I've got to keep my weight down. So then I've got to hit 25 minutes of hit training. I'm so crushed for the next six days that I can't go back to that level. And the idea that the nervous system plays such a big role in performance and we start think, stepping ourselves out of this muscular idea and the fact that the brain is, is controlling everything in the body. And if you fry yourself, you may not even be that sore, but if you're fried and you feel like you don't sleep and you're can't get enough to eat and you're constantly just achy and feel like garbage, you're doing too much. And that's just basic understanding of listening to yourself. And some of these people that are really performing at this high level, and you've worked with them because you've talked to me about this, they're putting so much on their body and you're looking at them like, why do you really, is that what you need? Or is that what someone told you on a written program that you need to do? So to me, I look at it as a base pyramid. The bottom line is lifestyle and lifestyle to me is all those things you talked about. Do you have a family? Do you have a job? Do you have kids? Uh, you know, are you in a stressful position? Are you a sales representative that every single day you got to go out there and make a sale or you don't make any money? Or do you have a regular job that just gives you a nice paycheck and you get to go home? And then I'm going to tack on top of that. What else can I stress my body with? Well, I'm going to go hammer a big workout. And then, yeah, I'm trying to lose a couple pounds. So I'm going to cut my calories too. And then I had a really stressful day and I was driving around. So I, I got about 20 ounces of water in today. And you start tacking those things on top of each other and you start looking at what their program should be and you step back and you go, you know what you need? You need about five days of walking and then you're going to do 20 minutes of strength two days a week until you can start to balance this stuff out. And how we play that game on the recovery is I would love for you to go into because when you started talking about these concepts of recovery being based on just breathing tempos versus heart rate or HRV, anyone that doesn't know heart rate variability is a relatively new term in understanding how the nervous system recovers. But I don't think that you start throwing numbers around and people don't get it. But I think this idea of simplifying and helping people understand, can you just do this on your off days? And can you, are you successful at it? Will make you feel 10,000 times better when you try to go back and perform. Yeah, I, I really, I think when it comes to recovery and you mentioned using breathing that is to me the first the first thing that we address is our our breathing and that's again on day one really but i love what you just brought up there my breathing will be more labored when i'm more stressed period i mean that that makes sense so what we were talking about a couple days ago is if we're going out for first i always do five to ten minutes of walking always first. And I mean, technically, I guess I would say first I do a breathing bridge first. So that is something that I really believe will help to organize our patterns and get our body set for a good movement for whatever we're training for that day. So I'll do a couple minutes of a breathing bridge. And so I'll, for example, breathe out longer than I'm breathing in. That's the main rule that I apply. And by doing that, I also start to force my air out a little stronger 
as I go into my second minute. So I'm really enforcing more of that expiration. So I'm really getting more internal rotation out of my ribs. So I'm really getting more of that transverse abdominis and I can start to really feel that position with my belly button cinching in a little bit more. It's not something that I have to like really over focus on though. If I use my breathing again, the breathing itself, if I breathe out strong and long, so that's why I think that strong and long will get the ribs automatically down. I don't have to say get the ribs down. It's just they're going to come down. And then I take my nasal breathing into it for that second part, and I really breathe in through my nose, but not as long as I breathe out. I'm going to start to engage that process, and I'm going to start to feel like my breathing is now reset a little bit more. And I do believe just because of our, you know, you could talk about lifestyles and everything else. We, we do need to do things like this to reorganize our breathing patterns because we're not hunting and gathering and moving around constantly the way that we originally did, or at least that's the way I think of it. So that being said, I'm out on this walk in the first five, 10 minutes, I may work again on a walking pattern of breathing out for a five count, breathing in for a four count, something like this. And if I feel a little bit more labored or if I feel a niggle somewhere in my body, I know I might need a little bit more warm up. Then I might go into just five minutes or so, maybe 10 of easy running where now I might be at say a four, three. Okay. Some of those days, I'll just realize in that process that I'm more fatigued than I thought I should be or would be, and I just take it easy that day. I might get in, usually I'll say 30 minutes, but I might be doing more walking than running that day. And what I've done, especially as you mentioned, we're aging, so what I've done is I've started to really let go of how much did I run today? It's more, okay, I got in 30 minutes, that's a win. It was better than zero, and I'll feel better the rest of the day. Even if I was fatigued, I kept maybe the running down to two minutes and the walking actually at three minutes. So by the end of it, I might have only run for 10 minutes when you include my warm-up and my cool-down. But that was enough to engage the process, to get the blood flowing, to get lubricated, and just to feel better for the day. So what I want to say on that, though, is that's also a great way to ensure that I'm keeping my easy day easy. Even if I feel great, I might keep myself at three minutes of running or four minutes of running and then one to two of walking. And that is the plan that day. So what I want to just reiterate there is that I actually have an energy system development plan where I say this is what I'm doing today, regardless of how fantastic I feel, because... Oftentimes, I'm sure, Ryan, you've seen this with your clients coming in. Because you spend too much of your energy on days that should be for recovery, the quality days now are not quality enough. They're, and people think we, know, we have this problem with our American athletes, and this is a big thing we work on with our athletes getting ready for this next Olympics, is are your hard days hard enough, actually? Because... Oftentimes, we wear some weird badge of honor that we're always grinding it out. And what I want to see is, okay, today's the day, right, to put that proof in the pudding. Today's the day to show your salt. So let's, let's, let's see what you got. Well, I don't got it. Why? Well, because yesterday was moderately hard. 
and it was, should have been easy. And what you were doing is you were running maybe the entire time with somebody who has, let's just say, a uh, they can run for an hour at threshold pace, let's say for six minutes. And your best for an hour might be, well, say seven minutes. And you're running your easy day with that running partner at, we'll just call it 6.30 pace. That's way, that's, that's way too fast for you on an easy day. But for that other person, it, it, it could be closer to appropriate for what they need. So don't put yourself into somebody else's program all of a sudden. That can be the problem with not following your own breathing patterns, your own plan, your own pace. What's your thoughts on that, Ryan? So I've dabbled in the powerlifting world a little bit, and I have a couple powerlifting athletes now. And the thing that the simple science behind it, if you're leading up to a meet, right, you're talking about this, are your hard days harder? And I, I think about that as like competition day, right? The hardest day you're, you should have effort wise is when you're trying to have an all out PR, whether it's running, whether it's powerlifting, whether it's, um, you know, your baseball player and you're just trying to perform at the top level that day, that's your hardest day. So if you're, everything within the programming revolves around this concept of I want to be able to perform at my peak performance day. So my hard day in my training block shouldn't be every day because I'm not competing every day. So if I have, I mean, do I succeed by saying, you know, I have one soul crushing workout a week. Like that day, my hard day is let's say it's every Friday and I'm 90 minutes, balls to the wall, whatever my sport or performance is. And the next four days might be some version of light to moderate. And then I come into maybe a 75% day. And I'm just, I'm throwing random numbers out here. This isn't as specific as to a program. But the way that we have to see it is just like you're saying, my athlete walks in. And we can talk about anyone being an athlete, right? That's, I, I actually like that term of saying athletic instead of functional because I think it's empowering too. You take a 55-year-old house mom that you know doesn't do a lot. She's just trying to lose weight and trying to feel better or whatever it is. And you give them that empowerment of being like, you're an athlete just like anyone else is an athlete because they're all doing the same thing. We're conditioning them. We're strengthening them. So we want to make them move more athletically you're going to move more athletically all the time if you perform really aggressively less and understanding how to put that in, I think comes down to understanding how your athlete is the day they walk in for that. And when you're some like, did you have it today? I thought I did. I was fired up. You know, I had 500 milligrams of caffeine on board and I, you know, I, I took another scoop of pre-workout and I was, I was ready and then your body just said no. Well, yeah, because I've done that four times this week. And I don't know if you're familiar with or some of the audience familiar. I went through the Czech Institute for a lot of my continuing ed. And Paul Czech, initially before he really went kind of the deep down the holistic side, still had this concept of energizing exercises versus draining exercises. And the more your really high performance stuff is going to drain you. That's going to take the nervous system down. So on the other side of it, you've got to have these exercises that are energizing, that are 
putting back into the system. And I think these walking days and these breathing days, and he references a lot of things like Tai Chi and Qigong and yoga. These are designed to be breathing-based exercises. Yoga is not just a stretching routine. It's can you breathe and maintain this breath through a pattern, through a position? Can you hold it? Can you move through it? And can it take the system down? And I don't know how many people are familiar with this concept of parasympathetic versus sympathetic. And when you're talking about being crushed as an athlete, that's that idea that you've taken this high stress response. And if people have lived stressful lives on top of that, and you're just at the top and the sympathetic is that fight or flight. If I was a caveman, you were talking about hunter gatherer all the time. Sometimes that hunter gatherer was, they had to take off running. They're either chasing prey or they are prey. And they're, but that is short lived. That is supposed to be, you know, 20 minute response. And then boom, I can go sit. I can relax. I'm with my family cooking dinner because we just caught a, you know, Buffalo, whatever it is. But now with the general lifestyle, we're in that fight or flight all the time. We live there. So what takes us out? Because if I go stress response right out the gate, cause I get up, I gotta get my kids to school and then I'm at a stressful job all day and then I need to blow off some steam. So then I want to go all out on my workout and then I'm going to go try to run a race this weekend. At no point does your body ever, maybe the four hours that you actually get into a deep sleep cycle, it goes, okay, oh, finally. So where's the balance? How much do I need to give myself of this walk, of this run, and how much of it can be 60%, 75%, 90%? And that's where I think the challenge lies. And I think no matter what your base protocol is, you're tweaking it all the time, I assume, right? You have an athlete that's, okay, you're gonna have, this is your easy day, and then they come in for their hard day and you go, guess what? I just looked at you and this is another easy day for you. So how do you, how do you handle that? Like would you have any level of athlete? Yeah, no, that's, I, that's another great question. Absolutely. If my athlete walks in, you can usually tell you just, you know, watch it, watching how they walk in. And if they're not ready to go hard that day, we'll make it a more supplemental day. We'll do a lot of auxiliary components that I know they need to work on but something that's going to keep their heart rate low. So, you know, for, again, for example, they might do some, uh, some yielding isometrics, not necessarily with a lot of weight, but I might have them do something like face pull-aparts where I know it's going to help with their posture and with their overall uh, movement through their shoulder girdle, things like that, that they need for their athletics. But it's going to keep their heart rate low, and at the same time, we're getting some additional benefit for their posture. So we'll do things like that. Um, again, you know, this is where I think it's great to have these conversations to discuss, too, what is optimal for strength and conditioning. So in this case, strength is what we're going to prioritize, but in a different way than people are probably thinking. And... For as far as conditioning goes, if that person is a runner doing 100 miles a week, the last thing I need to do is worry about putting them through more conditioning. So again, this is not going to be a day where we get the heart rate up, but I mention that because sometimes strength can be done at a pace that I really consider to be conditioning. So if they're swinging kettlebells around for an hour, 
uh, you know, that's that's conditioning. And I I am amazed, Ryan, at how many of my athletes had to be taught that really. Um, you know, I it, and still sometimes do. I, I had an athlete uh, come in a couple weeks ago and she was we were on a planned de- uh, decompression. So we did a intro week. This is kind of how I usually set it up a progressive week and a peak week. And by the way, for her right now, her emphasis in training is not conditioning, but strength. So right now, because she's in the off season and we have some specific things like the deadlift that we want to have most of her attention go to, strength is the priority right now. So she had done very well in her testing But generally what I look at is that fourth week is actually the first day of that first week, uh, fourth week we're doing our testing. And then we have about four recovery days. We don't, she doesn't do anything but recover. She doesn't train, uh, not in the traditional senses. She does some walking again, some light aerobic work and some personal protocol. But she came in, she said, um, okay, we're going to start off now our assessment for the next phase and her her body was a bit jacked up and I'm like what's going on you were great and you had a decompression and so she confessed well I went to I'm not picking on any one particular thing but I, I went to an orange theory class with my grandmother and they had me run a mile now this particular athlete is also a basketball player so I would never have her really conditioning in that way anyway, but she she ran a mile as fast as she could on a treadmill. And it was quite fast for somebody who doesn't actually train that way, but I can tell you right now that with knowing her form and her mechanics and the fact that she doesn't train for an endurance like that, that her form in that last, oh, I don't know, six minutes of 628 mile that she ran was not great. And so that is what we had to end up working on. So that's just an example of how um, I think we do have to educate our clients on what really is decompression or what is recovery. And again, in this particular case, that would take away from us progressing up to your next uh, lift that we really are focused on right now. So, you know, to me, Ryan, we, I think, just kind of summing up some of this conversation around some of the misconceptions and misunderstandings about our training and knowing what is optimal will stick with the strength side of things now I think at this point and looking at with our strength training programs for example are we in there to get stronger in specific archetypes and is that our main focus right now even for example if you're a distance runner but you just finished with your competitive season now i believe strength should be the first thing you do not the running i think your attention should be towards that strength and then maybe go for an easy run afterwards but this is where i'll flip the table with my runners for example but then I look again at a lot of strength programs that are putting in, to me, unnecessary conditioning. So this is where I'll look at um, doing a priming set in our strength routine, then doing something that's really getting, in other words, your nervous system up a little bit more. 
And usually this is short and sweet though. So then now we're just getting ready for, let's say that deadlift, that's our main lift. And then we'll finish off with some auxiliary things. Now, if this is not somebody who is running a hundred miles a week, or if somebody who is doing a lot of conditioning on their own, and this is the only time they're going to see me for conditioning, that's when at the end I will put conditioning in for uh, to finish off that workout, but it tends to be, for example, low-level plyometric might be sufficient for somebody like for jump rope, something like that. Whereas another person, I might have them on the Versa Climber or even just uh, doing something on the slide board, something like that. That's again functional, but more lower level, so it's not as demanding on the nervous system, less likely that we're going to have any issues or injuries from doing something like that. So that's kind of my thought on how we prioritize strength in a program like that. Whereas a lot of times I will see these sort of conditioning intervals. So Tabata sets, for example, where you're going 20 seconds hard, 10 seconds easy. I tell my athletes all the time, it's not that that is bad if, if your goal is to get your conditioning up and that is the focus and you've chosen exercises that are safe in that capacity. But I think more often than not, people think that that is just high intensity interval training and it's actually not and it's not a great choice. And that's just kind of my thoughts on misconceptions. What do you think about that? So I don't know if you're familiar with, you know, Dan John is do not know. Okay. So Dan John is a strength coach, been around for a long time. He's a big, strong first kettlebell guy. But the reason why I like a lot of what he writes about is because I tend to be overly cerebral when I'm looking at programs and I'm looking, trying to piece together numbers and percentages and, uh, different archetypes and how I want to put it together. And he's been around long enough and looked at all these things that he's just it's simple it's like why are we so focused on that and the, and you're talking about general populace like if you're looking at a elite athlete you're going to look at this a little different but i thought this was relevant in that conversation of interact of interchanging conditioning and strength and the way i remember he wrote something and he talked about your client has needs so if your client has issues with flexibility, there is some sort of mobility piece needed, right? If you have a client that is mobile and weak, there is a strength component that is needed. If you have someone who is overweight and trying to lose weight and decondition, there is a conditioning component. And he takes these three pieces and he goes, okay, you have someone that requires strength and someone that requires mobility. So give them a strength exercise then give them a mobility exercise and have them kind of cycle that together. If you have someone who needs conditioning, then you give them a strength exercise and then you give them some sort of inefficient movement, a burpee being an example. Low to high, change of, there's nothing fancy about a burpee except for you're changing levels and it's going to require a big change in blood pressure and it's gonna require that heart rate to spike up and you're gonna burn calories. And that's kind of a really simplistic look at strength, mobility recovery we could interchange those i think a little bit and conditioning is where does it fall under the need component if you have someone that is really well conditioned and they're coming off like you said a season then my base foundation of that protocol is i'm going to give them their deadlift right they're just getting strong now they're 
recovering off of their mass amount of mileage. And then they're going to sit around for three to five minutes and do nothing. Breathing drills. Maybe your breathing bridge. We talked about that the other day. Use that interchange with your, with your strength work. But how can I get them from this really ramped up, low rep, three to five rep deadlift, get they're all amped and then I wanna bring them 100% down because I don't want them going back to that lift until they're 100% ready to do it. So then put them on the ground, make them breathe. Make them come down, make them come out of that. They don't have to go right into something else and be like, okay, well, we're gonna deadlift. Now we're gonna do an RDL, then we're gonna do a kettlebell swing, then we're gonna do a plank to offset it, and then we're gonna throw them, then we're gonna give them two minutes tops, probably a minute, and then we're gonna put them back in the deadlift. They should be pulling that deadlift just as well. You know. How does that make any sense at all? Unless my ultimate goal is this CrossFit mentality of I need to have so much strength endurance that I'm going to crush that entire blend of archetype and then give them one minute and make them do it again. That doesn't make any sense to me. So optimal strength conditioning will always come down to giving that person the their, for lack of a better term, I want to give them the best chance of success of what they are trying to perform. So if it is deadlifts my movement for the day, and I've got maybe two accessories I'm going to throw on the back end of that and then a little recovery, I don't need to rush them through this deadlift. I'm going to give them some preparatory work. They're going to do five sets of five. They're going to take three to five minutes in between. I don't care if they feel at two minutes they're ready to go. I'm going to make them take the three to four and put them back in it because if I over recover them, I am better off than under recovering them. So uh, just tagging on to what you just said, and, and I absolutely, every, I kept giving you the thumbs up. I, I just, everything you said, it's, it's like uh, we discussed this before, but we really didn't. This is just the way I think that we both agree heavily on this topic. But Gage, who was, uh, we talked about him in the last podcast. You guys should definitely listen to that one if you didn't already. He was in to get stronger, and there was a lot of different reasons for that, but we had to get out of an injury cycle, and we needed the proper strength mechanics. This one particular day, I remember, we spent the whole day figuring out what we were going to do to improve his his mechanics for an archetype. And it took me figuring out different cues that worked for him. It also it took some figuring out on what type of movements we were going to do before our main lift, as well as what we're going to do for interset, which is the breathing bridge we use there. So I love that you said that. And that entire session... We really only got one problem solved, but it was an important problem to solve. And now he was able to get into the position we wanted and establish that. And then we just kind of made sure that his nervous system learned that particular pattern and that movement progression. And then from there, things started to really take off after that. And the reason why I say that is I feel like all too often we just want to like go, go, go in our strength training get all this volume done like again there's some kind of magic to that sometimes what you need to do is you need to take several steps back and really when i think of what is optimal for strength and conditioning just like you said well what is working for you but if you're not getting stronger in a particular progression and the intention is obviously to do that 
we need to look at why that is. And sometimes all we need to really do is go back to the basics and learn to do them better, do a little bit more planning, and understand that really for most of us, when we talk about strength and conditioning, we want to hit a pretty good balance there, right? We need to have good conditioning so we can oxygenate the body. Even if you're a bodybuilder, you would want that, right? But if you're mainly training for, let's say, more aesthetics, then of course you're not going to prioritize the conditioning as heavily as an Olympic triathlete. That that obviously makes sense and vice versa. But again, how many times I've seen athletes that are already running, let's say, 60 miles a week and then doing five sets like so-and-so they're not running 60 miles a week too. So there's only so much energy to share in the tank. What I would tell those people, if you're doing 60 miles a week, you're probably going to get actually more. You said the minimalist approach. You're going to get more out of doing, let's say, two or three sets of something and really being able to focus on those things. And by the way, not trying to fit in um, you know, seven or eight or nine or 10 different movements like a circuit, instead focusing in on a few movements and doing them really well. So I'll end with that, my thoughts on optimal strength and conditioning. Ryan, where can people find you, sir? Oh, wow. Uh, I work for a company called Performance EDU, just right around the corner from the magical Pandola studio here. Uh, you can check us out on the website, performancedu.com. And I am also on the Facebook and the Instagram and uh, apparently soon on uh, LinkedIn if I can figure out how it works. <laughs> I <laughs> love it. Technology uh, inept, but uh, I was about to start my master's program, so I have to apparently figure this stuff out. But. Yes, that is where I am. So feel free to reach out to me or uh, send me a message and I can answer any of your glaring almost doctor questions. I love it. It's, it's just funny to me how often I hear that people are actually really buried in what they're doing and in their bubbles oftentimes are not so great at the social media. And uh, it's a catch-22 because guys like you, Ryan, have to be better at the social media so more people know about you, right? And you can help a lot more people that way. So I highly encourage you guys to check out Ryan. He's actually um, one of my closer friends in the, in the training world. Uh, his facility is now where my original facility was, and now I'm just around the corner. So it's, it's such a small world, isn't it? So uh, anyways, all right, guys, thank you so much for listening. Again, I will remind you I'm getting some emails, but in December I am focused 100% on getting these projects done. The MDP program with Bobby McGee for my runners out there will go out in 2021, working hard on that, as well as my fitness book for hunters with Chad Belding and Bobby McGee. So looking forward to sharing that with everyone. Thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.